mental state, or in a sense, switching channels. You turn on the breath channel. You have to understand, if, the, if this awareness of breathing becomes very strong, you now have a new possibility that you didn't have before. But you only get it because you've practiced. You've literally created an option for yourself now. The stronger it gets, the more reliable it is. So that now you acknowledge, let's say, the fear. I know, you're, I know I'm afraid right now. But perhaps you're not ready to just investigate fear straight out. But it doesn't mean that we then have to get all enveloped and buried in the fear. We can then turn to the breath knowing what we're doing. And be, because the, if the samadhi has become stronger, we become absorbed in the in-breath and the out-breath. And as you probably know, it has a very, very soothing effect. And so what has happened is you've averted an extended period of suffering and replaced it with a kind of happiness. The more concentrated the mind gets, the more still it becomes. The more still it becomes, the more joy and happiness there is. Now, for those of you who are new, this is not being recommended as a total practice because if you've turned away from fear, in a sense, uh, come to a refuge in the breath, a safe sanctuary, and as it gets deeper, you can heal yourself, you can nourish yourself for extended periods of time. But it doesn't uproot your fear or your loneliness or our boredom or whatever. And that's the work of Vipassana. And more and more, of course, uh, as these 16 contemplations unfold, we'd be taking that on directly. But we're laying the groundwork by developing a foundation of really solid samadhi practice. Okay, I think tonight... Uh, I'm going to just finish up with the fifth and sixth contemplations, and then um, the next time we meet, I'll try to f- I'll I'll go through the rest. Actually, the second part for many would be probably be more interesting, but you have to know this to do the remainder of it. I don't know. All well, this is interesting enough right now. I don't mean the words. The fourth contemplation, which I just described, but I'd like you to hear it in the Buddha's words. I'm breathing in and making my whole body calm and at peace. I'm breathing out and making my whole body calm and at peace. This is how the yogi practices. Let me give you just a a very simple uh, analogy as to how this works. A kind of a feeling for it. Let's say... um, it's a very cold day and you've been outside and you're really cold and you come inside and you have a hot cup of tea. As you have a few sips of the hot cup of tea, you know, it spreads out, it warms the whole body. As the tea goes down, you find that it radiates and warms up the whole body or the other way around. Let's say in the summertime, you're very overheated and you just have a cool drink and the body cools down so that the substance that you put into your mouth is fluid the temperature of it, affected the whole body. So you were uncomfortable, you were cold, and a warm drink made you comfortable again. Or you were warm, and a cool drink made you comfortable again. Well, the body can be very uncomfortable, tense, awkward, tired. And if we're able to develop these very fine, soothing breaths, 
it has the same effect. So that if, if the breathing in and the breathing out are the breathing in and breathing out of very uh, calm breaths, full and fine and pleasant and free, that affects the whole body in somewhat the same way as the drink. Okay, now we move on to the fifth. And it says, I'm breathing in and feeling joyful. I'm breathing out and feeling joyful. This is how the yogi practices. I think I'll take five and six together. The sixth one is, I'm breathing in and feeling happy. I'm breathing out and feeling happy. The yogi practices like this. What is that all about? If you recall, we left our breath at the nostrils a few moments ago, right? It was coming in and out, and to some degree we're tagging along, knowing it. The fifth step and the sixth, even a little bit later, grows quite naturally out of the development of samadhi. That is, as the mind becomes more concentrated, that is, as you're more able to continuously be with an in-breath and an out-breath, there are fewer gaps. You slip off the breathing less. When you do, you're able to come back more quickly. You immediately notice that you're not with the breathing. As we're more able to do that, another way of putting it is simply as the breath becomes more concentrated, what comes up is really... What, uh, the, the word joy doesn't fully uh, convey what it is, so I'm going to use a Pali word, which is called piti, P-I-T-I, it's sometimes translated as joy or rapture. And it's a, a happy feeling. It's a very stimulated, stimulating and exciting one. It quite naturally grows out of the, when the mind starts to become more concentrated. Some of you have experienced it. Sometimes the, the body literally shakes with joy. But it's stimulated, stimulating and exciting. It's important to remember this. It's overall a good feeling. And often what happens is it's a feeling of accomplishment. And that's part of why uh, PT is, is, uh, is PT. It's we begin to see, oh, the process is starting to work. You know, we jump up and click our heels. Not intentionally, but there's something in us that likes to see the fruit of our work. We've worked hard, and suddenly we see that the mind is becoming more concentrated, and suddenly we're starting to feel happy just because the mind is more concentrated. You mean all those things that all those people have been saying might really be true? Wow. Okay. So it's overall, it's a positive feeling. However, it still is a, there's, a, there's a bit of jumpiness in it. It's very stimulating. And if any of you have been in this state, let's say particularly on long retreats, uh, you might know that at a certain point you get kind of fed up with being joyful. Okay, I've been, you know, I've been rapturous for the last day and a half. I, you know, I, I can't stand it anymore. <laughs> I'll even settle for some depression, anything. So it's got something in it. Now, that's where if, if the attentiveness can stick with it, with the PT, with this more active kind of... Uh, of uh, pleasantness, you come to what is called sukha. 
And sukha is the opposite of dukkha. Some of you know dukkha means sufferingness or unsatisfactoriness, and sukha is the opposite. It means happiness. Now, sukha and piti are in a very funny relationship. They need each other, they work closely together, and they're also antagonistic. You can feel it. Sometimes you can't separate them. But there's the, the sukha is already there as the piti is developing. There's happiness there, but it's being dominated by this more active energy. It's a more excited active energy. As that energy runs itself out, and it does primarily because it's, we watch it, we simply experience it. That's why, in a sense, the whole path from beginning to end is attention. You have to realize what you have in attention. It's some kind of miracle. It transforms everything. It changes energy into something else. Okay, so that we're paying attention to this more active, stimulating kind of energy with awareness, with our mindfulness. And some of that begins to fall away and then a more soothing peaceful kind of happiness comes, it's far more desirable. I mean, and desirable is the right word, and it leads to certain problems. It is uh, a kind of happiness that you are happy to be in for extended periods of time. It's just very, very, very peaceful and happy. It's not enlightenment. And it can very easily be lost, even in a moment, where piti will take over again. Now, the ancients used a, uh, an illustration to give us a feeling for these two. They both go together. You have to develop the piti for the sukha to, to emerge. But at a certain point, it's very important to really develop sukha and to not get caught in the more agitated kind of happiness. They said it's like a traveler who's been in the desert for a long time and is parched and thirsty and having a lot of problems, no water for a long period of time. And suddenly they uh, meet some travelers who are ringing wet and happy and fresh looking who talk about water. There's really water. It's around the bend somewhere. And you can swim and drink it and there's plant life and you can eat it. And, and suddenly there's excitement and happiness. But it isn't a kind of a real... Uh, silent fulfillment, still peaceful fulfillment, real soothing, a deep kind of fulfillment that happens after you've come to the actual water (coughs) and had all that you need and then can just rest in the shade. And then, as I remember, the commentary says something like, ah, just to rest in the shade now, what bliss. After having been through all of that heat, it's, of course, a metaphor for our journey. The journey being of, um, as the Buddha put it, uh, the whole world is on fire, parched. This is pre-atomic age. What's on fire is greed, it's on fire with greed, hatred, and delusion. And what puts out the fire is the Dharma. Dharma is the only thing that has the ability to quench our thirst. It moistens things. brings them to life. So that now we've come to this piece, and I'm going to take it just one step further, and then I'd like to hear uh, what you have to say or any questions. It's a, a more serene kind of happiness once you uh, come to, the, to sukha. 
And in this happiness, there is uh, a great tendency to become addicted. Many teachers don't want you to develop concentration to this point because they're afraid that you'll, you know, it'll be hopeless to try and get you to investigate again. I mean, after you've seen a sukha, who's going to want to look at impermanence, you know, and dukkha and all the rest of those critters, you know, who come around? However, in the Buddhist teaching, uh, it's considered, this is my understanding of the Buddhist teaching, an extremely important ability for a yogi to be able to nourish themselves on happiness. Or is this actually a, cru- a crucial turning point in practice? When you have a, re- a reliable source of happiness that comes from within. Again, we're still not talking about enlightenment, but there is extraordinary peace and, and joy and healing. It's a kind of nourishment that you now have available increasingly on a predictable basis. That is, you can turn to your breath and drop into this state heal yourself and then come out and then look at whatever you may not feel up to looking at. But as you, let's say, if you've never tasted this, it can come as quite a shock. And people will just not want to leave it. There's all kinds of delusion. It's cl- people often feel they're enlightened. Uh, start looking at the world as, seeing the world as a really grotesque place, even worse than when you began and a real uh, resistance a one, a two, uh, to being full in life, to being whole in life. And at that point, what's necessary is either to use the same samadhi techniques that we were using, that is, there's one more step, that is, concentration can be used to heal this itself. If you can be so concentrated on the happiness you come to something that leaves that happiness behind. It's called one-pointedness, ikagata. However, since that's not so easy to do for many people, often what, what is suggested, each, each one is good, uh, is that at that point, it would be very helpful to use vipassana. That is, you begin to examine the happiness itself and you see that it's impermanent. And in seeing that it's impermanent, you realize that it can't possibly deliver what you want it to. Because even that sukha, as wonderful as it is, it will pass. It doesn't last forever. And as you begin to see that, you become less uh, clingy, less clutchy about it. And so now, it, it is put in its place, its proper place. It's a way to nourish the heart during practice. It's not a final resting place, but it is a resting place. It's a way to give the heart strength and rest so that it can, uh, subsequent to its rest, come out and begin um, vigorous in, uh, study and learning. And that's when uh, vipassana itself comes in and we begin to investigate the body and the mind and feelings and whatever. So I think I'll end at that point. What we're going to do in the next talk is just continue um, just to anticipate slightly from here on in, what tends to happen is now the breath goes into the background and is used as an anchor and something to constantly nourish awareness. But the awareness will be investigating all the common themes that we all 
know of in any Vipassana technique. We'll be looking at attachment, impermanence, letting go, cessation, and so forth. And it goes all the way up to what is conceived of as enlightenment or nirvana. And so the, the breath is a kind of thread. And on that thread, the beads of our experience hang. And we examine the richness of what a human being is, always breathing in and breathing out. Now, it's not something you do all at once. It's something that is gradually developed. And at that point, you could say that uh, uh, you're practicing anapanasati. That's your whole practice. All it is is the same old practice. It's just using the breath throughout. Okay. Sorry we can't cover the whole thing in one uh, one shot. It would be maybe more coherent, but let's uh, do what we can uh, with what, what has uh, been covered. Uh, any questions? And please, you know, make it as concrete and personal as possible. It's about your practice. That's what really matters. Anything you didn't understand or anything from your... Yes? Well, I'm, I'm just on tender books now to hear the rest of this. Uh, yeah. When you say an examination ensues of the different qualities, uh, in what sense do you mean that? Uh, is that like a discursive? Are you new to Vipassana? Relatively new? Relatively, yeah. Yeah. No, it's not discursive. It's direct perception. For example, let's say, um, let's let's apply this to the contemplation of feelings. Let's say, let's say in a, any emotional state, let's say anxiety comes up, what we call anxiety. Uh, you would focus on into the anxiety and look at it directly while breathing in and breathing out. Or let's say there's some pain in the body. You would, and this is very helpful. Some of you may want to experiment with this. Um, when you're, you don't have to have gone. You can work with this at whatever level your practice is. This, it'll, it would be less. I mean, obviously you won't be having full joy and full peace, but you have some. Okay. So let's say you have pain in your body. Uh, you would focus in on the physical sensations, that, that pain, while staying in touch with the breathing in and breathing out. And what that can help you do is stay anchored and steady so that uh, the breath provides a kind of a soothing quality while you're investigating something that's not pleasant. Let's say you're looking at physical pain or anxiety or fear or loneliness or anger. The breath itself can be a very soothing accompaniment. So it helps you remain concentrated, but it's not discursive. All you're doing is experiencing whatever it is you're examining as it is. And in this practice, uh, you've, uh, you're encouraged to see. Now, again, at first it may seem like an ideology or a belief, and I suppose at the beginning it is. But what we're encouraged to, to see if it's really so, for example, is, there, is it true that everything is impermanent? Is it true that there is no ownership to anything? That everything is empty of self? That it's just phenomena, empty phenomena rolling on? that that anxiety arises like a cloud formation. It crests and then it dissipates and fades out until finally it's gone, just like any other phenomena in nature. And that it doesn't have your name on it. You didn't ask for it. You didn't send it away. But there it is and now it's gone. 
and you begin to investigate the mind and body, whatever it is that you're doing in any of the practices you're using. So it's the direct perception. You know, you're contemplating it from a particular angle at the beginning. Let's say impermanent, impermanent. So let's say you look at anxiety from the perspective of impermanence. At first, we're using to some degree some thought. Somebody's put that idea into our noodle. You know, it said, "Look, look at these things as, as if they see if they're really impermanent." So it's a kind of a, a a notion or a hypothesis. But more and more as the practice develops, the insights are not, don't come out of a, a, a premeditated contemplation, but they're intuitive. Uh, if impermanence is truly universal, how can you miss it? It has nothing to do with Buddhist dogma. It has to do with the way things are. It's a law of nature. And so we investigate anything to see if that law is true. This is one thing you might do. But we don't lose touch with the in-breath and the out-breath. See, tell me, for example, were, did any of you listen? Is that clear? That it isn't discursive? Yes. Okay. Um, did any of you attempt to listen while staying in touch with the breath? Were you able to do it? Was it at all helpful? Can you tell me how? Sorry to put you on the spot, but uh, you're kind of a ringer anyway. Your mind wanders less? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's one, that's, uh, of course, a major thing it's supposed to help you do. Um, in the kind of work that I do, as many of you know, there's a lot of interviewing, individual, where you're sometimes on retreats, you talk to uh, rather uh, an unreasonable number of people, one after the other. <laughs> um, and what, of all the things, I've, what i found is just simply staying in touch with the breathing helps keep me fresh. You know, it helps the mind stay a little bit innocent. Anyone else have any experience with it? You know what we did in the Thursday night class, and I don't know if any of you, there are a few people here from that class. We started off, simply I turned all the lights out in this hall and had all the lights on uh, our boss up there, the Buddha. And we just all contemplated that object, just that form, that, uh, not, that uh, Buddha Rupa, that f- Buddha form while breathing in and breathing out. And some people were able to allow it in more deeply. Uh, try it listening to music. If you have some music that you like, listen to the music as pure sound and see if it doesn't help you to do that by staying in touch with the in-breath and the out-breath. Or a work of art, or just walking along the street, or just contemplating nature. As Now, if when you do it at first, it doesn't help you do that. Remember, what I'm saying uh, presupposes that it's been made much of. Or as you've used the breath over and over and over and over and over again, so that finally you've constructed something that you can now rely upon to help you. Yeah. Okay. Anyone else? Please. Um, for me, this is beginning to click, going to the ocean and hearing the rhythm of the ocean has been that hook to help me to calm and focus. And mm-hmm. Now I'm Understanding it's my breath that can do the same. Yes. Kind of just that rhythm, always there, never ending until I got it. Well, that's the beauty of it. It's very simple and it's always there. 
And what the Buddha has done is, if you go through the remaining steps, you'll see he's just capitalized. He's extracted a profound significance out of a very fundamental and simple event that if you're alive, you're breathing. And he's just taken it to the full... All He's just gone all the way with it. Most religious traditions use the breath in some way or another. It's often conceived of as the breath of God. Many Christian contemplatives use it. Uh, and so this has, you know, it has, it's, it's used elsewhere as well. Yes? It seems necessary for me to really exaggerate the breath. Exactly. You mean control it? Well, sort of, do, you know, do deeper than, you know, in order to follow it. Mm-hmm. Deeper than, yes. Yeah. Okay. Does every can you all hear that in the back? Okay. Uh, actually, you're putting your finger on something. Um, it turns out that it's possible. I mean, I don't really know, but this is just my impression. But it's also others. I've compared notes with all of us who went to Asia and came back. It seems as if we have more pr- problems with our breathing in the West. Then, then uh, let's say many of the, the monks that let's say I practice with in Korea and Japan and Thailand come from very simple rural backgrounds. And they have access to their breath in a way which we don't seem to at first. And so many of the, sometimes our breath is faulty because of all kind of perhaps lack of exercise or whatever, emotional stress. And so then someone gives you these instructions and you start paying attention to the breath and it's actually not such a pleasant object to pay attention to because uh, perhaps some breath therapy is needed or some remedial work, pranayama or yoga or some change to make, to help working from the outside in. This is not meditation. And so that sometimes we did a few simple exercises in the Thursday night group, but I don't like to do too much of that and I'll tell you why. You can get very dramatic effects with yoga postures and various breathing breath therapies more quickly than with meditation. With, let's say, rapid breathing, breath of fire, or there's some pr- forms of pranayama, you'll get high in no time. And so people are then become much more drawn to that. But in the process, don't develop uh, the wisdom that, of course, is in the, in the long run far more valuable than any of these special effects that we all really love. You, you probably all, I can't say this, but let's say, wouldn't you rather levitate than get enlightened? <laughs> wouldn't you rather levitate than just be a free and compassionate person I mean it's not too commercially viable to just be compassionate but levi- levitation we can package that just think how far you could go with that but okay to get back to your question if you're um, now and then to take a uh, let's say start off a sitting if you feel that helps you by taking a few deep breaths there's no problem with that but then let the breath run naturally and from time to time, if you're having a problem, let's say getting all caught up, I, I, I think it's fine, you know, to take a few, a few deep breath, in-breaths and out-breaths. But be careful that you're not doing it so often that you're not getting practice, a certain kind of practice that's essential. And that is learning how to, how to be comfortable with discomfort. Learning how to stay alert with a breath that isn't appealing, that's cramped and, and shallow and, and agitated and uncomfortable and not free. Because what I've seen is that if you can do some other things to smooth out the breath, let's say like Hatha Yoga or Tai Chi or what have you, uh, or breath therapies, it's helpful. 
but it isn't absolutely essential because if you're willing to become aware of the, let's say, less than uh, free breaths, which are not too pleasant and perhaps not so easy to attend to, in the process of doing that, you really refine your awareness. And so there's some, and you also develop this capacity to be with unpleasantness so that you have confidence in that everything's workable. At first, our mind doesn't want to watch things that aren't pleasant. And so that can be another way that it develops. So if you use it from time to time, I, see, I don't see that as a problem. But the main thing is to just allow the breath to just do what it wants to do and learn how to keep up with it. Something much more valuable comes from that. Again, it's not either or. Anyone else? Okay. Please. Yes. And sometimes when I'm having a really uh, hard time just doing some of those first steps, I've found that uh, doing something like scanning the body with watching the breath can actually be easier mm-hmm. at times than just trying to watch the breath. Yes, no, I think that's fine. Uh, let me just touch upon that. Uh, it's set out in 16 steps, and if you really practice, you see that they're not accidental. That one quite naturally leads to the next. And so if you want to do the full course, the way it was set up by the Buddha, uh, you can do it that way. And it's very, very helpful. Now, once you gain some experience, it's not that you have to become fully enlightened, but you become really at home with these 16 steps to some degree, then the whole thing breaks down. It's not, and it's not that it breaks down, is then you can be totally spontaneous. And one person might find that, they, that uh, they've learned that step number three is what really, uh, they love it, and they really love to do it, fine, then do that a lot. It can become your whole practice. Or uh, something that's much more common, and especially we in the West, we're in a hurry. Most people don't want to go through all 16. There's got to be a shorter way, and there is. But, of course, you're not covering everything. And the, the shorter way is to develop samadhi through the breath, through whatever many of the ways that you already know, and then, then jump right to step 13 and contemplate impermanence while breathing in and breathing out. Because impermanence is what opens the door to everything. But so that it's, it can be very, the traditional way, what I'm attempting to do is present it the way in which I think it was intended, is to work through it step by step. And then... There are various, various kinds of editing and combinations that each person should do according to their own individual character and practice experience. You're expected to become self-reliant and creative. But to begin with, it's helpful, uh, and it's hard for Americans to do this, to just surrender to the, to the practice for God's sakes and stop making up your own new practices. And You know, uh, the man I've learned the most from about this is a man named Ajahn Buddhadasa in Thailand. And... Uh, Every time there are a bunch of Westerners there, not every time, but uh, a fair amount of the time when I was there, uh, he'll start off by saying, look, I know you Westerners are in a hurry. Please just try to do it the way the instructions are and 
later on, you know, you can concoct your own techniques and put this together. And, you know, I suppose you'll start workshops and open up centers about it and all of that. But for right now, can you just do it this way and, and test it and see? If, and he's right. Um, but what you're saying, though, I, couldn't, I could see is actually within this, this, the scope of what, what was just said. Because the um, backing up. Oh, okay. Let's say you start to work with step one and two, which we all do. We would if you want to undergo this, this kind of training. And then you move to three and four and so forth. It doesn't mean you're finished with one and two. So that uh, in a given sitting, you might start off the sitting by being with the whole breath. And then as you calm down, then come to a more pinpointed kind of attentiveness. So that let's say in your case, you might find by experience that uh, there are times when, this, when the sweeping is very, very helpful for you rather than just straight breath. And so then you would go to that. And then, but roughly your direction would be moving towards uh, the development of samadhi so that the joy and peace comes up. And out of that comes a strong concentration, which can then be used for vipassana, for investigation. But it sounds fine. Please. Okay, um, there are differences of opinion on that. I would say overwhelmingly, um, it is thought, there's what I'm relying on now, commentaries, and I would say my own experience, because I've used the whole breath quite a bit, and I've also used this. I was prejudiced against the nostrils. It seemed somehow, oh, too artificial and too limited, and the whole breath sounded more romantic and holistic and new age, so I, I did a lot of that. You know what I mean? It wasn't just me. Okay. Uh, and it became almost ideological within uh, Buddhist circles, sort of like all of these, the stodgy, kind of narrow-minded people stick to the nostrils and the free spirits, they're just with the whole breath. You know, it's more natural. And it became, uh, really, it, I didn't realize it at the time, but it's obvious what I was doing. But I've since worked with it just as, you know, just for what it is. I would say overwhelmingly the opinion of the commentators over the, pa- the past is that uh, the quickest way to develop uh, PT and Sukha is through, uh, because you're trying to become one-pointed, is, uh, okay, here's the, here's the way they, it's put. The narrower the area that you're working on, the smaller the region that you're working on, the more concentrated you can get quickly. Okay. Now, which is not to say that the whole breath is, has no value. Uh, it's very beautiful and valuable. In fact, in med- for other things, it's, it is much better. But for, for developing um, the samadhi practice quickly because there's a, an exquisitely subtle sensation that comes up here after a while and so that you can drop into, if you can stay with it, uh, you can drop into uh, piti and sukha more quickly. Again, I, I, put, a, uh, I put a footnote individual differences. If you're a person that you might say, that sounds interesting, but I do the whole breath and it takes me to PT and Sukho, oh, I would trust your experience. Fine, full speed ahead, whatever works. But I would say overall, this seems to be what. And my experience bears it out. I can get uh, some of that with the whole breath, but when I go here, it's just, um, it's, it's much quicker. I, I should make, just to finish the train of this train of thought, Finally, when you're developing the samadhi, it isn't about the breath at all. In fact, the big joke is that 
Anapanasati, the full awareness of the breathing, has nothing to do with the breathing, finally. It has to do with developing, liberating awareness, the awareness that sees through all of our attachments and so forth. So that in this in the samadhi practice, let's say you're following the breath, but at a certain point, um, the breath stops and you come to one-pointedness. It's sort of a convergence of all these scattered energies. The breath was the medium to gather all of that divergent energy and then... Uh, it feels as if you're not breathing at all, and that can be an issue when you're not used to that. And so there, no matter where you are, forget about it, because you're not feeling the breath. It's that still. What, what has been your experience? I usually use the whole breath. Meaning just this? Or I feel the whole body. And I can feel very blissful. I'm curious to sometimes you feel like the whole breath is, uh, is there for other things. Yes. Okay. Um, one of the things that we're developing when we're, let's say, you're with the whole whole body and the whole breath, that's a more comprehensive kind of attention. Uh, there, the Buddha basically talked about two kinds of attention. One is very focused, like um, what do you call it I mean, with cameras, a zoom lens. Okay. And the other would be more like wide angle. Yours is more wide angle. Okay. Now, um, most of what has been brought to this country has been brought here through the Burmese approach, which emphasizes more the zoom lens, point-to-point focusing, moment-to-moment, object-by-object. But that's not the only kind of attention. It's an extremely valuable thing to be able to do, and every yogi should be able to land on one object and stay there. It's very helpful to be able to do that, not just the breath. It could be anything. But now the more comprehensive part turns out to be invaluable for the for the very rich things that we'd be getting into in the later contemplations. Because then you're having to be attentive to, let's say, um, fear while breathing in and breathing out. It's a much bigger canvas that you're working with. Uh, Also that working with the whole breath, um, the whole whole body and the whole breath, especially if you're drawn to it, as, as it seems you are, carries over into daily life in a very beautiful way. It can, in just ordinary walking and just uh, being very steadied and, and grounded in just daily life. It's a beautiful practice. I'm not in any way discrediting it. But for just the development of samadhi, I found this to, to be quicker. Yeah, to experiment, see which, see which is best for you. Yeah. What, is the teaching, what does the teaching say about um, having any kind of visual image while you're doing meditation as opposed to simply being aware of a physical sensation. Like what? Well, for example, uh, I guess I can use my own experience. Uh, I could start out with a with just perceiving a physical sensation, like being with the heart or being with the whole body or something. And then after you know a while, half hour, 45 minutes, it's almost natural it seems that I somehow form a kind of visual picture. It just comes. It just comes. Yes. And it seems to even get me deeper into whatever. Yes, that's called a nimitta. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't have time, but that can come up in this practice. Sometimes the samadhi can become very, very deep. And quite spontaneously, you're not contrived, it's not contrived. Uh, An image can can be like, uh, uh, what is your image like? Um, kind of like a 
center of my body that uh, has a bellows attached to it, the breath is a bellows? Yeah. I wouldn't call that. Uh, there is, to get real deep samadhi, I, I don't, that, that's too much. It's too big. I think that would be limited, but it's in that direction. Um, what you can learn to do is you then use that as the object. But you, this sounds too... too uh, it's cover, it covers too much. But let's say what you could do is eventually, this is just sometimes, and this doesn't happen for everyone, one other path is at a certain level of concentration, these uh, images come up. Okay, it could be uh, one that, for me, what comes up is looks like the, uh, an aperture looking out of a cave. It's just like a round thing. It looks like there's just great light on the other side of this. Like it's as if I'm in a cave and I, I can see through it to light on the other side. Mm-hmm. And it just comes up. Now, w- and it can be a tuft of cotton or it could be any, all kinds of things. You then can use that because that's even more subtle in the breath. And you can enlarge it and shrink it and, you know, play with it. And that can also help with samadhi. But it's, it's, that's one way to do it. Um, I would say that uh, for this practice, what's emphasized is developing the ability to pay attention to what is. And uh, in this case, as long as you haven't put it there on your own, you haven't, you know, that can be uh, used as well. But you have to be careful you don't get caught up in it. You know, like you like it or you feel that uh, it's exciting or that this means that your practice is developing. It just seems to have Yeah. Probably what I would say, maybe a fair number of other people who came in on an interview, would be go back to the breath. You know, just be more reliable in the long run. Yeah. I'd have to know you a little bit better to say more than that. Yeah. One, yeah, please, Murray. Uh, I've been following the abdomen for a long time. uh, You're an abdomen man. Yeah. And uh, every time this subject comes up about whether we should follow the breath of the nose the abdomen. The answer seems to be, well, just where you're following, just continue to follow it. Now, I'm not saying that, am I? Do I hear you to say tonight that the, uh, the focus on the nostril is, is a quicker way to... Yes, it? you do hear me say that. It's not democratic. I'm not saying just hang out wherever you want to be. It's all okay. But let me limit that. Uh, it's what, uh, basically what I mentioned. Take a look at the abdomen. It's much broader. It's again. It's just like the whole breath or the chest. They're perfectly good places to be. And finally, it'll be. Is it working for you? If it is, for goodness' sake, stay there. Don't don't become a professor of comparative meditation techniques. You know, if it's if you're drawn to it and you have an affinity for it, just stay there and just in one ear and out the other ear. Whatever I was saying here. Uh, by and large, though. And this has been my experience because I've also spent a lot of time here. You know, if you work with Burmese teachers, that's where often they'll. Okay, um, this is—it's a larger area, and it has certain advantages, just as the whole breath does. But when you can develop, you see, for example, what I was referring to is not, in a sense, even following the breath. It's uh, stationing your attention, let's say, at the nostrils or the upper lip and experiencing the in-breath, the sensations produced by the breath coming in and coming out, you're not moving. It's not like you're moving with the breath at that point. You're just stationary, and you feel the sensations as they come and go. If there are no sensations, you're still there in that region. The image that the ancient commentators use is of a saw. Let's say here's some wood, 
and there's one piece that you put the saw on. You don't have to follow the saw. You know, you don't have to go here and then there and here and there. You just keep your, it's where the teeth of the saw touch just one point on the wood. That's what gives it the power to cut through the wood. And so the image here is it's not that you're following the breath this way. That was step one and two. And again, it's all useful. It's not, don't ever set any of these up against the others. That's the mistake. It's not political. Okay. Anyway. Um, so you, you, you're at this point. Now, in, in the samadhi practice, l- let me very, very quickly uh, sketch out the way the, the early jhanas come about. First, you have to aim your attention at the object, whether it's the breath or whatever it is. That's number one. Then you have to stick with the object. If the degree to which you're able to stick to the object produces piti. Piti grows into sukha. Sukha grows into ikagata, one-pointedness, where uh, the mind, where awareness resides in itself. It's just pure awareness with no objects. Okay, now, uh, what I am saying is that based on my own experience and based on, um, obviously, it's the bias of the particular teachers I've worked with and uh, the commentaries that I've, uh, that I've studied, although the basic ones that everyone has access to, nothing special about it, overwhelmingly, uh, this is what is thought can get you there more quickly. But now, if you greedily start doing that, you, you have another problem, a new way to suffer. <laughs> so now, what are you going to do, Murray? Are you going to say the tummy or the nose? <laughs> are you going to be a... Ch- For years, you used to say it didn't matter. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter for certain things, but... Uh, but for this, what I'm saying is that this can be helpful. Yeah. I remember, here's something not to forget. I'm talking about the Anapanasati Sutta. So, you know, it's not just general, I'm not. I'm, you know, it's, it's, this is the way this sutra unfolds. Can you see the difference? If we weren't doing this, it's a, it's a little bit different. But really, which, where do you want to be? I'm not trying to be a wise guy. Okay, great. Okay, can we have a moment of silence, please? arriving sometime Tuesday evening. And as many of you know, um, the main influence in the teaching here comes from the Thai forest tradition. In many ways, a rather simple, uh, non-scholastic, non-systematic way of practicing. Not as much emphasis on technique, much more emphasis on spontaneity. Uh, 
in some ways not as precise as other approaches. At any rate, um, if you'd like to meet him, he'll be here. And there's a, a description on the bulletin board of uh, some more formal opportunities. But probably what will happen is that um, we'll have an informal dialogue most mornings. I would say probably around 11 o'clock. That isn't listed. But either call the center or if you live nearby, just uh, come by. And if any of you um, connect with him and you feel like talking with him further, privately or otherwise, I'm sure that can be arranged. Okay. In the spirit of this uh, teaching, Anapana Sati, which is the full awareness of breathing, the teaching the Buddha's sermon on the full awareness of breathing, uh, even before I say anything about it, let me suggest that you participate in the talk in the spirit of Anapanasati, which is experiment and see if staying with your breathing while you listen can help you be more attentive. That is, uh, wherever you're being in touch with the breath at this moment or in your practice, uh, go there. Only the primary object of attention is what's happening right now at someone speaking. But you don't lose touch with the breath. It's sort of the, the breath slips into the background and becomes a kind of anchor. And when you get to learn how to use it, it can really help with listening quite a bit, especially as it becomes natural um, to stay in touch with the breathing. Okay, what I'd like to do tonight and then on a, in a second uh, a second occasion, is just give you a little bit of a taste of um, what I think is a, an extraordinary teaching of the Buddha. Um, we're spending 20 weeks on it, as some of you know, on Thursday evenings, and we won't be able to do it justice. It's really, it can be a lifetime's work because um, this sutra is unique in certain ways. Um, it provides a systematic practice. There are 16 independent contemplations of the breath. There are 16 slightly different ways to become aware of breathing. All of these 16 are very tightly interrelated. One leads to and supports the one, the next. And so it kind of starts off slowly and builds up, builds up quite a bit of momentum. And it's a complete path. That is, uh, whatever you may think of as being Buddhism is contained within this sutra. And it's probably, of all the teachings that we have available to us, the one that has the clearest detail on the actual practice of meditation. Even here, of course, there are commentaries that uh, range back for centuries and some of them disagree with each other. Although overall there's a, a fair amount of consensus and in many of the other practices we don't have quite that information. Those of you who have been practicing for a while have probably heard the term anapanasati. Sometimes people will say, well we're going to do 
a typical retreat, for example. It's, I think uh, Goenka teaches this way. If it's a 10-day retreat, let's spend the first three days doing anapana. That's a common way of speaking. Um, some of you met uh, Ajahn Sumedho. It's the same. What they're talking about are really only the first four steps of these 16 uh, contemplations. The first four have to do with the development of calm. And so, uh, it's a samadhi practice to begin with. And so that's what has come to the West. Most of us, when we hear anapana, we think that it's a way to use the breath to become calm and steady, and then to use that steadiness, once the mind is, is rendered fit from that calming and steadying, to then get to vipassana, to inquire and to develop insight, wisdom, and total freedom. Uh, but the sutra itself, as it moves from the fourth all the way through the sixteenth, actually includes straight vipassana. The last four are very pure vipassana. And every step along the way, there are it's a blend of both. In fact, even the beginning steps, which I'll, I'll go through. I won't be able to cover all 16 tonight. I'm just going to sketch out more of the spirit of it and a few words about uh, as much as I can cover tonight. Even the first two, which uh, are sometimes characterized as for beginners, as a preliminary exercise in developing the ability to observe and to pay attention, can actually become a full practice itself, leading to insight into emptiness. Now, why this question, who, who is breathing? Uh, that's really the main question in all spiritual practice. It's just a variant of who am I? Or sometimes it may be more accurate, especially if, if you've been uh, steeped in Buddhist teachings, to ask, what am I? Who almost implies that there's something there, an entity. And so, as many of you know, the, quen- the question of personal identity is, is crucial in the Buddhist teaching. Essentially, what is being said, and this is a difficult one for us in the West or anywhere, really, to grasp, even intellectually, to begin with, is the essential identitylessness of people and phenomena. Nothing has innate or inherent identity. Nothing. Whether you look at yourself or whether you look at what is called the environment or things. Everything is a a process. In fact, even the way I phrase it is incorrect. There's only process. There are no things. But I have to use language. And so what let's say, which interests us most as a person, it's not that there is no self at all, that we're just totally, completely deluded, imagining uh, 100% of the time that what we are is what we are, but rather what we think of as being ourself isn't quite what we think it is. So that there is something relatively true about it this notion of there being selfhood. But if something is relatively true, it follows that it's also relatively false. And so it's that kind of delicacy of seeing that what there is when you investigate and look carefully, not as a theory, but it can be confirmed in your actual experience, and that's the only way to really confirm it, is that there's only a process 
That's all there is. There's nothing outside the process. Everything is totally interdependent. Everything is influencing everything else. And there's nothing that stands aside from that. That, let's say, is bearing the influences or putting out the influences. Now, mainly, of course, what we're concerned about is what we think of as being us or I. And so in asking the question, who's breathing, we won't be able to um, give it full justice tonight because probably what we'll be able to cover are mainly the um, samadhi portion of this sutra with some hints at, at what is to come. But as you move into the sutra, let's say to contemplation 13 and, and beyond, 13 is the contemplation of impermanence directly, again using the breath, what you, uh, what you see firsthand is not only is the breath impermanent, that is, from moment to moment each breath is different, it arises and passes away, and in the 13th contemplation, after having built up uh, tremendous, let's say, what to call it, our ability to stick with the breath, stick-to-itiveness. That isn't a good word for it, but it'll have to do. Um, If you practice the breath in what the Buddha referred to as continuously, and I'll try to suggest what that means, or the Buddha speaks very highly of this practice, uh, he said, if it's made much of, it leads to all kinds of wonderful results, including health. Now, made much of means that we're paying attention to the breath all the time, or certainly to begin with a good deal of the time. So by the time we've worked our way to the 13th contemplation, uh, before I go on, are there any people here who are totally new to Vipassana? Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, there's a certain terms. You know, if you heard of it, there are only a few of you. If I can straighten this out, it'll help me. Have you heard of the f- term samadhi? Concentration? Or It isn't? Okay. Okay, I know what I have to translate. Um, By the time uh, we've moved to the 13th contemplation, which is the contemplation of impermanence while breathing in and breathing out, the mind is very, very steady. It's very concentrated. It's extremely calm. It's fit to really do the work of Vipassana. And so to begin with, you can look at the breath itself and see not only that it arises and passes away, but it itself is not inherent. That is, how a breath is depends on how the body might be in the moment or how the mind might be in the moment. Also, how the mind is, is how the breath might be in the moment. And how the body very clearly is, is how the breath might be in the moment. So you begin to see a field of interdependent energies that are influencing each other. Sometimes the breath is extremely fine and deep, very soothing, and one negative thought. Perhaps you think of a bill that you haven't paid and you just become slightly anxious and suddenly that thought conditions the breath to become coarse, agitated, and shallow. Now, when you start to uh, observe relationships like this, and this sutra takes you through that quite a bit, as I'll try to make clear, you begin to see how everything is very, very sensitively related to everything else. 
and the breath being situated between the mind and the body is an excellent place to see how, how sensitive life is. In other words, to be alive is to be very changeable. Okay, so that as you focus in on the 13th and see uh, impermanence through the breath directly and then using the breath as an anchor and invest, investigate whatever else you want to, including going back to the first one, which is a kind of preliminary, as you'll see in a moment, that preliminary becomes a full practice because we can see that it's impermanent and from impermanence comes an understanding of emptiness. Emptiness, as I'm using it here, is saying that there is no inherent existence. We don't inherently exist. There's no core to what we think of as being the self. There's a process of coming and going, but there's nothing that we can point to and say, this is me. I mean, you can try it, and I I would encourage you to do that. And see if you can find something that stands up Okay, if you recall at the end of the sitting that we just had, I asked you to look into, just ask yourself the question, who's breathing, while attending to the breathing. Um, did any of you have an answer? Anyone come up with an answer? No? Yes, what was your answer? Nobody. Okay. Now, is nobody somebody? I mean, is it, was it a thought that came up, nobody? Yeah. Okay, as you look very closely, especially as the mind becomes very calm, what you'll see is you can definitely confirm the fact that breathing is happening. There's no question about that. And then the real fun becomes, can you find the breather there? And I encourage you to hunt. Find, I've been looking for a while now. And you'll get thoughts which say, I'm the breather. You know, I'm breathing very, oh, how nice and calm I am. My breath is so smooth and even and rhythmical. But that's a thought. It's just the thought I or mine. Okay. The Buddha, in a, towards the end of a three-month retreat, Apparently a treat because we, we have a retreat we have a, re- a record of that is reported about it. Many people uh, penetrated very deeply on the path. And some had already been practicing Anapanasati. And it was during this retreat that he went into detail more than anywhere else in the teachings. Because uh, this practice is referred to fairly often throughout the teachings. But in one particular occasion, on one particular retreat, He went into enormous detail on it, and that's what we have available to us. Apparently, this was the practice the Buddha used during his own enlightenment. And also, we have uh, reports of even after enlightenment, periodically the Buddha himself would go into retreat. Some of you ask, well, has there come a point where you don't have to do all this practice anymore? Well, even after enlightenment, the Buddha would go off by himself for two and three months and sit. Well, he said, well, what is there to attain? Maybe nothing. You know, but he still did it. You see this? Okay. <laughs> um, some of it is just a very good way to live. Um, the practice itself investigates 
everything that you're used to investigating in whatever Vipassana technique you're using. It has something um, to it. There's something unique about the breath. Finally not, but to begin with there is. Uh, It's very joyful to just breathe when the breath is flowing freely. And as you practice, that's what happens. You start, the breath becomes free. It starts to flow more freely. And so there's a certain joy that's released in the practice, which of course is very nourishing. And so the Buddha talked about the values of anapanasati if made much of. Now let me give you a sense of what made much of means. The first two contemplations May as well read it to you. I'll read to you from the sutta itself. You can get a feeling for it. Many of you have perhaps never read one of these uh, classical teachings. What is the way to develop and practice continuously the method of full awareness of breathing so that the practice will be rewarding and offer great benefit? He goes into great, a lot of detail as to what that benefit is. It's a little technical about stages of enlightenment and so forth. It's like this, yogis. The yogi goes into the forest or to the foot of a tree or to any empty dwelling and sits stably with crossed legs holding his body quite straight and arouses mindfulness. Breathing in, he knows that he is breathing in, and breathing out, he knows that he is breathing out. To begin with, that we're, we just get oriented, and then the, the teaching itself begins. The first contemplation. Breathing in a long breath, the yogi knows, I'm breathing in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath, the yogi knows, I'm breathing out a long breath. And then the second contemplation. Breathing in a short breath, the yogi knows, I'm breathing in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath, the yogi knows, I'm breathing out a short breath. many levels to this. The first is simply think of yourself as someone who's never meditated before and you've just started to to develop this practice. And so the first contemplation is, is a relatively easy way to begin to familiarize yourself not only with the breath but to develop mindfulness, our old friend. And so the way that's done is to simply be to be able to see if a breath is long, another way of putting that is as if it's deep, or if it's short, or another way of putting that is shallow. And so the first two contemplations have to do with following the breath. And here, it isn't just at the nose tip, as uh, many of you do, uh, which is a very useful practice. But, but for here, it's the it's more the full breath. That is, you're tracking the breathing. And you'll, whether it's long or short has to do with the degree to which you feel it in the depth, let's say, of the abdomen and, and deeper, even the pelvic region. And as the, as the sensitivity to this develops, you feel it throughout the whole body, the reverberations of the breathing. But at any rate, at the beginning, most of us can feel the breath as it courses from the nostrils. You certainly feel it there and perhaps at the chest and perhaps at the abdomen then it returns. The out-breath, you feel it at the abdomen and at the chest and then at the nostrils. And r- roughly, that is, uh, is, is uh, followed. You travel along with the breathing. 
experiencing it wherever it goes. And sometimes you'll feel it, you don't feel it as far as the abdomen. It seems as if it only goes as far as the chest. I work with one person who didn't feel it go down as far as the chest. A very, very deep blockage. Or severe blockage, rather. Now, even there, what you would do is relative to how the breath is for you. You could see that the breath is long or short. It's relative to your breathing, your pattern of breathing. And so to begin with, you're following the breathing in a rather open, natural way, not confining it, just letting the breath go its own way, follow its own nature, and you're following it and experiencing, oh, is this long or is this short? Getting to know that. As you begin to know that, you begin to see that there are differences between the in-breath and the out-breath. Moreover, you see that certain qualities seem to go along with deep and shallow, qualities having to do with a fineness of the breath or a coarseness. Or sometimes the breath feels extremely comfortable and pleasant. And at other times, it can even be painful. And so what is happening during these first two uh, uh, contemplations of the breathing is you're getting to know breathing. What Dharma practice has to do with is getting to know nature. It's unlocking the secrets of nature. And in this case, we're going in. We're entering nature through the breathing. It's a very, very fundamental process. No breath. Nothing else can happen. We're dead. In fact, you could say the simplest way to talk about death is that you just don't take another in-breath. That's it. Okay, so you do this. Now, people would spend as much time as they would need. Some people might spend many, many months just working on these first two contemplations. We spent in the Thursday night class about, I don't know, five or six weeks. And so you really get to know long or deep and short breaths. You really get to know it. Now, it starts to become uh, even more interesting. Why did the Buddha pick deep and shallow or long and short? What's so special about that? In one sense, nothing. Anything could have been picked to practice mindfulness. And this is a convenient object to do that. And it's it's helping us to develop so that we can then move on to somewhat more complicated types of attention. But it's also no accident that long and short are picked. Because as you begin to follow the long and short breath, as you get to know them, and get to know them in a, uh, a more intimate way, you begin to see that, it's, that it, there's a relationship between the depth of the breath and many other things. For example... As the breath becomes more full and deep, you may find that it also starts to become more fine, more smooth, more free. You may also find, and here is uh, the next part as we start moving into the third contemplation, but you begin it even with the first two, uh, the influence of the breath on the body. This becomes very important in this part of the sutta. And you begin to see that there's a very close relationship between the way the breath is and the way the body is. In fact, there's a term, uh, 
kaya sankara, which means that the breath is a body conditioner. The breath is a very, very powerful conditioner of the way in which the body will be. Uh, to make this as obvious as I know how to do it, let's think of the deepest conditioning that the breath uh, provides life itself. You know, this clay is breathed into and suddenly there's life. It's animation. And so, very clearly, the breath, when the breath enters the body, we now have a very powerful kind of conditioning. Now that body is animated. It begins to be able to do all kinds of other things. The breath alone can't do it. It, it, it needs the body and organs and so forth. So that right from the start we see that when we contemplate the breath, we're contemplating something sacred. Very often in uh, teaching this, people get bored with the breath. Perhaps everyone in this room has. And so sometimes it's helpful to throw it back to a person. If, if, you're, if that has happened to you, you can do it. Um, what is it we're bored with? Or I remember in one retreat that I led with a Trappist monk, we, uh, it was a Christian Buddhist as an attempt to, I don't know what to call it. It was some kind of a stew. It was at IMS and it was uh, Father Theophane, who some of you know, and I attempted to teach Vipassana. It was essentially about 125 uh, ex-Catholics or people who were hanging on for dear life to the Catholic Church, but resenting it. And uh, Father Theophane was someone who they could really say anything they wanted about the church because he was further out than they were. <laughs> At any rate, we were following the breath much along these lines for a while. And then somebody very disappointedly said, I came here, I'm interested in God, and you keep asking us to follow the breath. So, um, Father Theophane bailed me out. And he asked me, he said, uh, do you believe that God is everywhere? And he said, oh, of course. And he said, well. You know. <laughs> yeah. But when that fails, I have an old technique which I call Brooklyn yoga. <laughs> Works every time. If you don't get it, that is, that what you're attending to is not just some random object or arbitrary object, but it's actually the life force itself that you're contemplating is close off, if you like, try it. Close off your nostrils and seal your mouth very tightly and see how long you can practice. You'll soon find that how vital what that process is. Okay, so uh, as we begin to become familiar for, in a first-hand way with the depth of the breath and the shallowness of the breath, we begin to see that as the breath becomes long or deep, it has a very beneficial effect on the body. As the breath becomes more calm, these are all different ways of describing a long breath, usually. As the breath goes, so goes the body, and you'll find that as the breath becomes very fine and deep, the body starts to calm down. And it becomes easier to sit for long periods of time. In fact, you can sit sometimes for hours once the breath fully opens up because as the breath becomes so fully open something magical happens to the body and you can sit in the posture that before that time was just full of aches and pains 
And so you start to see that, oh, this breath seems to have a strong impact on the body. That is, that is, as the breath changes, and here's a very crucial point, it changes simply because we watch it. Many of you have probably done various forms of hatha yoga and pranayama, various forms of uh, controlled breathing exercises, which are some of them quite extraordinary and helpful. In a sense, this is Buddhist pranayama. You don't do anything. You just watch it. <laughs> There's some healthy things to the, to the physical body that come in by Buddha, through Buddhist practice, but it seems like the Buddha rarely talked about physical health. I mean, he talked about it sometimes. You know, that you need it in order to practice, but now let's practice. But there's a very simple but powerful relationship which you have actually participated in many times already. Simply turning to the breath, as aiming your attention to the in-breath and the out-breath, and more and more being able to rub up against each in-breath and out-breath, that is to be able to stick to it, not trying to do anything to the breathing, not manipulating it, or trying to be any special way whatsoever, just simply paying attention to it, you'll see that the awareness changes the breathing and it changes it in an extraordinarily beneficial way. Probably most of you in this room have already experienced that. But extract the implications. That is, you now have a means to alter your situation, whatever your situation might be. If you can remember to turn to the breathing, simply turning to the breathing changes the quality of the breath. In changing the quality of the breath, and I mean in a favorable direction, you change the quality of the body. Now, in these first four contemplations, we're on the body. Clearly, it will affect the mind too, but that comes in later ones. So for the, for the moment, uh, let's just limit it to the body. So that you begin to see that if you can remember to turn to the breath, you have a way of developing happiness in the moment. And it's not dependent on anything external to you. You've learned the law of nature. You've just learned the law of nature that if there is sensitivity to breathing, it returns to its normal state. You see, the breath naturally wants to be full and free, just like a healthy body wants, each organ wants to do what it's supposed to do. But we, we do things very often through our emotional problems, which interfere and constrain the natural and full working of the body. And so, for example, because we've have had some emotional difficulties and perhaps unpleasant thoughts, and that's not rare, you know, that a fair amount of our life includes that. Uh, and as you begin to watch the mind and the breath in later contemplations, you'll see how sensitive the breath is one negative thought, and you can feel the body and the breath change, tighten up, be constrained. Well, now we have a medium through which to immediately change the state of the body and to anticipate further things to provide happiness in the moment. Okay, now, as we move on, if you are undergoing this as a course of training, someone who is guiding you would be encouraging you to, be, to see as much as you can the sensitive and delicate relationship between the breath and the body. How the breath influences the body and how the body influences the breath. You start to see that 
uh, it's a two-way street. For right now, we're mainly interested in the breath as a conditioner because we have much more control over that. And remember, the control comes not by control, but simply by being sensitive to it, being aware. Okay, so now we move into the third contemplation. I'm breathing in and I'm aware of my whole body. I'm breathing out and I'm aware of my whole body. This is how the yogi practices. Now what we've begun to develop some sensitivity to, which is the relationship between the breath and the body, starts to become um, more full, richer. And we take the body itself into account. And so there are a number of ways to, to enliven the breath and the body as we move into the third contemplation. And uh, I'll just suggest a few that we, we have done in, in the Thursday night group. Um, various teachers use one or another of them, sometimes all. One is while you're breathing in and breathing out, you sweep through the body. And some of you have done sweeping. Uh, sweeping is like a body scan. You just start at the top of your head and uh, it's like going on a tour through the body with awareness, but not losing touch with the in-breath and the out-breath as you do it. Or another way to, to uh, enhance this bodily sensitivity with the breath in the center of it is to just make the body the field of attention, the whole body in the sitting posture, and then to feel the breathing, to feel the whole breathing, the whole breath happening in the context of the body. Or you can continue the tracking, which we use for the first two, that is, move from the nose down to the abdomen and back up. And as you develop in that, you'll develop more, there are a number of dimensions that pop out. For example, at first, perhaps when you're at the abdomen, you mainly feel the rising and falling motion. As the practice develops, you'll feel stirrings in the back as well. While the rising and falling is happening of the abdomen, you feel sensations, breath sensations in the back, or you feel them on the sides. And as you work your way up, the same thing starts to happen. At the chest, it's not only in one spot, you start to feel it in the back, and very in the front and on the sides. And soon, your notion of what the whole breath is changes. So that sometimes what it feels like uh, is it's as if you have um, poured mindfulness into the whole body. That is, the entire body is permeated with awareness and sensitivity. And it's fully experiencing each in-breath and each out-breath. Now, these are just words because as that develops, there's no separation really. It's a a breathing body that you're attending to. Now, at that stage, the linkage between the breath and the body can become even more intense. And what you can learn about the effect of simply watching the breath and seeing what it does to the body and learning all about the nature of the body can become quite uh, deep and will really hold your attention. One way of uh, working is now to move to the fourth. Now, again, how long one would have spent on these first two, three contemplations could be anywhere from a few minutes to a year or years. 
It has to do with your fully understanding or mastering that step. For example, what would it mean to master long and short, knowing the breath is long and short? It means you really have total confidence that you know the difference between a long and a short breath. Moreover, when you follow the breath, you're able to fully follow it without any gaps. If you watch, let's say, if you attempt to track the breath from your nose to the abdomen, you may find that some, somewhere along the journey, the attentiveness slips off and then it comes back quickly. And uh, you don't feel the full journey of the breathing. But as the practice develops, you, f- you fully experience a, whole, a, a long breath. You fully experience a shallow breath. And you start to develop real confidence in the way in which the breath conditions the body. Okay, and th- as we then move to the, the fourth contemplation, which has to do with calming the body, and this is now becoming a very, very important uh, prerequisite to the development of samadhi. Are you all with me so far? Now, if you've noticed, we've talked about many things, but it's still the breath that we're emphasizing. Um, and the breathing, uh, you would be encouraged to develop mindfulness of breathing in daily life as well. I should include that. It's often taught under the first and second contemplation. As you're beginning to get to know breathing, the long and the short breathing, you would also be encouraged to develop this ability to, to unite the awareness of the in-breath and the out-breath with whatever activity you're doing during the day. If you're washing the dishes, you're washing the dishes uh, fully knowing that you're breathing in and you're breathing out. That's why I'm encouraging right now, uh, practice listening while breathing in and breathing out so you can get into the spirit of this. This is what the Buddha meant by made much of. Walking down the street, you are aware of the body walking while breathing in and breathing out. In short, especially, of course, on retreats when you have... Uh, not only the encouragement, but a situation, a protected situation. Uh, The breath becomes your friend in everything that you're doing. There are even forms of of formal walking meditation where you key your attention to the breathing and the breathing directs how you do the walking. It's not simply using the breathing to help you do the walking. It's that the breath takes the lead. It's hard to describe here. It's not that it's so complicated, but it's intricate. So that your attentiveness uh, would still be with the breathing. Now, the reason this is done, this is an ancient principle in samadhi work. The main way in which samadhi is developed is you take one object and you wholeheartedly work with it, coming back to it over and over and over again in the face of much distraction, as we all know. So that if you were on an Anapanasati retreat, using it in the fullest sense, that it's taking this whole sutra into account, there's a definite advantage in using the breath as a kind of anchor in, let's say, uh, daily life type things, miscellaneous activities. Because more, it sort of recedes into the background. If you're, let's say, chopping vegetables, you should, you're, mainly you should be chopping veg, vegetables. The full attention would be to the chopping of vegetables. And the breath is sort of in the background serving as an anchor 
It helps keeping uh, helps keep you awake. It minimizes unnecessary thinking. It helps you keep from forgetting to be in the present moment. So it's a marvelous way it's for, because it's always happening. We don't have to introduce it as long as you are, the breath will be, or it's the other way around, really. And so there it is, the in-breath and the out-breath, constantly with us. And if we can take advantage of that, which is what this sutra is about, essentially the Buddha is saying, if you can surrender to the breathing, that can help you surrender to the mind and to the heart, and eventually it becomes total surrender and freedom. So that if you let the breath take you where it will take you, it will take you to a very good place. It's where many of us would like to go. And at any rate, that place, as always, is right here. And so learning how to use the breath as a kind of adjunct by uniting it with the activity helps us carry out the activities more fully. It's not that we're walking through Harvard Square spaced out about breathing. It's that the breath is designed in the way in which this uh, technique is used, designed to help us stay more awake in whatever we're doing, to really remain attentive. And the breath helps us do that. If it doesn't, then of course you shouldn't use it. Some people find it very beneficial, others don't. Okay, so we move into the fourth contemplation. And here, the most important thing to learn is that as the breath gets calm, the body gets calm. Because we're now laying a a foundation for the development of samadhi, or some of you think of it as samatha or shamatha, uh, a calm abiding, or a steady and concentrated mind. And this is what was meant by samadhi earlier. Now, I know there's um, probably everyone in this room, or almost everyone in this room, has done samadhi practice to some degree. And so now we're really joining up with probably what you already know. At this point, uh, one thing that you might do is switch now to the nostrils. This is a common way in which it's taught in Thailand, for example. Now, you've done a lot of work with more open, more comprehensive form of awareness, not pinpointed not so focused, more open. And in the process, have become more familiar with the breath and have developed already some calm. But for samadhi practice, one excellent way to really, uh, for the breath to become very, very calm rather quickly is to focus on the sensations at the nostrils. If you haven't done that, try it. Because a very delicate sensation is produced. And because that sensation is so delicate, if you're able to pay attention to it, the awareness becomes delicate. Because otherwise you lose it. If the sensation becomes more subtle than your mindfulness is, you lose it. And so the challenge is keeping up with an increasingly subtle and refined breath, which gets more subtle and refined the more you watch it. So there, you see it's kind of a circle. The the attentiveness and the breathing are helping each other. Now, as you do that, that's you, you uh, bring attention to the in-breath and the out-breath. 
and let's say you improve your ability to do that, you'll feel calmness in the breathing. And then part of what you learn is that the body becomes very, very calm and there's an overall sense of calmness. Okay. Um, Here, at this point, there's a very important recognition to make. Now, we've actually, if you've been doing this, and I don't mean just tonight, obviously, you're just, this is just uh, a hint at it. If you've been doing it for quite a while, you, you're bound to see that you have within your own uh, resourcefulness the ability to generate happiness, to allow a happiness that comes from within. And the more you do it, the more access you have to that happiness. It has nothing to do with what the world thinks of you or how the weather is or whether you got a, a, a raise or whether people think you're beautiful or intelligent or handsome or anything of the sort. And moreover, it's up to you. You can do it. Okay, now, here's where there's a, a crucial kind of learning where the, the breath uh, can be very, very helpful. You probably have already done it, but not perhaps fully realizing what you have in your hands. As you know, very often the mind is afflicted by all kinds of trouble, right? If you just follow the ways of the mind, just the way it is, I don't mean with Vipassana, just, I mean just get involved in the many thought productions of the mind, that doesn't seem to lead to peace. What you'll find yourself doing a lot about is worrying, being anxious, being preoccupied with the future, etc. You know, the typical, our typical mind. Now, as, as these steps unfold, you begin to see that at a certain point you have an option. Let's say there's some uh, very painful event happening to you in your mind, or in the body for that matter. You have the option of either getting sucked into it and feeling really bad, getting very depressed, and it can last for a long period of time. It, it can proliferate, as you know. Or you can short-circuit it by taking the opportunity to simply turn to the breath instead. Now, this is not repression or denial. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.